You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 62. Subscribe to us on, leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zack. And Outlaws enjoying the good life somewhere. (laughs) He's on vacation this weekend. Uh, we're We're plowing ahead. The show must go on. That's right. This episode is sponsored by FreshBooks. The all-new FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy accounting software that's transformed how freelancers and small business owners deal with their day-to-day paperwork. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. FreshBooks provides the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and more importantly, get paid quickly. Getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple, even if you're not a numbers person especially if you're not a numbers person. Now, when you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether they've seen it. This puts an end to the guessing games. The new notification center is like your personal assistant, letting you know what's changed in your business since you last logged in and what should be dealt with, like overdue invoices. This lets you focus on what's needed to get done and to help you get back to work faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash coding, C-O-D-I-N-G, and enter coding blocks in the how did you hear about us section. Okay, and with that, let's go ahead and get into our news section. And first, as we always do, we want to thank our reviewers. So these are one of these is kind of interesting. You are, I are. Smitty Abe, Chris E, and J one nineteen nineteen nineteen. Yep, yours are a little more difficult than mine. I've got the Stitcher reviews this time, so big thanks to Cleveland and Nate the DBA. Awesome. And as always, uh, visit uh, the website for the full show notes. You can find it at cuttingblocks.net slash episode 62. Excellent. All right, so I was reading the other night, you know, just trying to get more involved with this domain-driven design thing. And one thing that has bugged me about this whole thing is is persistence models. We hear about these things called bags of properties, right? And it's really when you see a class, it's nothing more than a bunch of public properties with getters and setters on them, right? It bugs me. Like, I look at that and I see that everywhere in code, like all over the place. Everywhere I've ever worked, you know... Those things seem to just be, that's just how people do things, right? And and typically, that's like your DTOs. And one of the things that we're looking at in the domain-driven design stuff was this whole thing of really you should not have anemic domain models because that means that you're basically just creating these bags of getters and setters. And so I was like, well, you know, how, how are people doing these differently? And I found this great article that I tweeted about that this guy talks about the persistence model, which is basically your kind of like your DTO versus domain model or how you can kind of get to that without having a wholesale change your entire app. And so there were a few key takeaways from this that I thought were important to bring out just so you can think of, hey, you can't take your entire application and maybe convert it to to domain-driven design, but there are some practices that you could put in place that might ease some of your pains that you're already feeling. Because So Joe, you and I dealt with this uh, at a previous company where basically we abused the heck out of Vanity Framework, right? And so essentially our 
persistence model, which were the things that mapped to the ORM, everything started getting crammed into those things, right? And and all the all the properties on those classes were were public get set type things. And so you got into this thing where you're constantly trying to maintain the state of this object, right? Like if there was a tax thing on an order line item, then it just became a nightmare trying to figure out how do I get this thing back into the proper state, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that this guy said that I really liked is the very first thing you could do is in your persistence model, get rid of all these sets, Make everything a public get and a private set. And what that would indicate is you were sort of moving to this behavioral type thing. So if you're going to not create another layer, you're going to stick with just your persistence layer, and you're not going to create a domain layer, you get rid of all these things where people can just go in and willy-nilly change a property on a class. Instead of doing that, you now create methods or maybe even an interface to it so that you expose public methods that can be operated on and those maintain the property changes within the class, right? Yeah. So, go ahead. I was just thinking like um, an example might be instead of saying my object dot status ID equals four, you might do something like... um, my object dot disable and it may in the background just set the status ID equal to four, but it may also insert a history record or do a soft delete or, you know, hard delete, do something else. That's absolutely what he was getting at was just that you don't have to have this intimate knowledge of all these little pieces, right? Your, your behavior method will. So I thought that was excellent, right? The second way that they said about doing it, um, that was actually that was actually a second one. The first one was just leave everything the way it is, and that that kind of stinks. The second way was adding in the the private setters, which I think I think buys you a lot, especially if you don't have a super complicated domain. I think that's a good way to go. The third way is you have a separate domain, but instead of trying to do a full-on mapping, you sort of kind of mix the two, right? You leverage the the persistence layer in your domain, essentially is what it boils down to. Because what he goes to in his, in his ideal world is you just create a domain and you don't even have a persistence layer, which is kind of interesting. I, I don't know if I fully follow that. It, it would definitely make your business logic a lot cleaner, but then some of your translation stuff would be a little bit more difficult. And, you know, coincidentally, we're going to be talking about the anti-corruption layer in this particular episode. So I think it kind of falls in fairly nicely there. Yep. But... But yeah, I I think it's important to know that this doesn't have to be an all or nothing type of thing, right? Like you could take some of these ideas and say, oh, okay, instead of just operating on these objects, just like they're things that I can toggle switches on, think about the behavior that those objects can do, write application methods that way, and then those are responsible for doing things. And, and that also has a side benefit of also making things more testable, right? Because now you have one thing that says, hey, if I if I call this behavior, then it should have mutated the state of these things over here, and you can at least anticipate that the output of that is consistent. Yeah, I really like the sound of that, and it's a nice uh, experiment that you can give a shot. And if you find that you're having a lot of pain points when you try to do that, then Maybe that's a sign that you have something else to think about. You know, maybe you're doing something wrong or, you know, maybe, maybe DDD isn't for you. I don't know. 
Yeah, very true. I, I I guess that's one of the things is I really like a lot of what what we're going through with this DDD. The the only problem that I really have up to this point is the number of layers that you could potentially have, right? Like this is definitely for complicated business situations. Yeah, it's not worth bringing on the vocabulary alone if you're doing a small a small project. Right, and, and I think that's really the big thing. But there are a lot of there are a lot of fundamental ideas in here that I really like. That whole idea of focus on the behavior, right? Because as object oriented developers, a lot of times I think we get hung up on the thing that hey, we have this object and we can change these properties on this object. That's really not how we should be thinking. We should be thinking, what are we trying to accomplish, right? And now let's encapsulate that behavior. And now we can at least guarantee certain things, right? So, yeah, it's funny. Well, like when I do work for work, uh, I tend to think very data centric. Like uh, I, I think about the persistence layer first and foremost. But um, pretty much any side project I do, there's like rarely a database involved. Like I'm usually doing some sort of video game or some, you know, some little fun thing, whatever. So uh, I kind of have to think behaviorally. But it's weird to me to kind of have one foot in two different domains. But that might actually help, right? And maybe that's something that we put together some sort of thing on GitHub. I, I, I've been trying to think about how we could do this, and I don't want to nail us down to something because we've we've all got too many things going on. But it would be interesting to take that and, and just look at, hey, what would a baby step towards this be, right? Like take just your standard app that you see out there with these bags of properties and step it towards something that's a little bit cleaner. It'd be so. cool to see like uh, multiple like multiple takes on the same kind of project. Like if there's like a well defined like this is how you, what you have to do, and just see the different ways people solve and like take like a DDD approach or take a you know a data centric approach. Yeah, and the thing is, is like you said before, you reached out to Eric Evans, and he was like, "Yeah, I don't really know of any open source projects because it's 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 just not one of those things that lends itself well to the open source community on that, right?" So. Anyways, that that's all I had on that. I thought it was interesting, and hopefully it ties into this show a little bit later on. And I did finally get the comparison review out of the Lenovo Yoga 720 versus the HP Spectre X360. The YouTube video is live as of 2 a.m. last <laughs> night, so please do go over there, check it out. Hopefully you enjoy it. If you do, leave it a thumbs up, subscribe to our channel. We're going to maybe do some more hardware reviews, and, and we'll definitely be doing more coding stuff. Yeah, excellent. I actually haven't watched yet, but I'm looking forward to it. But um, I also, uh, we ran a contest recently and asked people to send in their favorite manufacturer, and I've actually got the results up here Um uh, I think maybe we'll send it out in the next email blast too, but uh, you care to take a guess at what the number one uh, chosen laptop manufacturer was? It's either going to be Apple or Dell. I, I'm going to go with Dell. All right. So Dell was actually number two with 16%. Uh, Apple is number one with 32. Wow. Yeah. That's double. That's impressive. Uh, number three, Lenovo or HP? Man, you're good at this. Uh, number three was Lenovo. Uh, HP was uh, down at number seven, actually. Well, wait a second. Who would number number four would be? I don't even know who I go with at number. Who who would that be? Asus. But they were also they were tied with Microsoft, actually, which I thought okay. was really surprising that that people kept talking about the Surface. I I mean the Surface is a killer device. And the Surface Book is too, if you got the cash on you. <laughs> yeah, and there are actually a couple I'd never heard of before, like MSI, Razer, System Seventy Six, uh, and a couple other, literally others. 
So I, Dude, I was you kinda, haven't heard of Razor or yeah. MSI? I probably couldn't name three manufacturers. I'm just not a hardware person. Dude, come on, man. The Razor, by the way, the Razor makes one called the, uh, I think it's called the Razor Blade Stealth. Man, that is a beautiful machine. <laughs> I think it's a 14-inch. It's got a gaming video card in it, like uh. Uh, RGB colored keyboard. It, it's amazing. Anyways, all right. So if you got 2K to spend and you want something super high end, that's one. There you go. And we'll have this little graph and these numbers in the uh, show notes as well, uh, as well as a link to the uh, the video that Alan posted. Excellent. All right. So uh, now it's time to go ahead and get on into the show. And Joe's going to kick this section off because, again, we sort of did the same thing that we did last time. And some of us took certain sections. And so some of us will be naive. <laughs> All right. So yeah, startup. Um, I kind of took the chapter in the book on strategic design, um, which is just more focusing on where we put stuff, which I, I think has been kind of the driving uh, force between all of the, this whole book. And this whole notion of DDD is just where do I put my stuff. And I think that's actually um, probably the biggest area that I struggle with, like much more so than like a lot of the micro stuff that we've talked about. I mean, we've mentioned this before too. It's just, um, to me, this is the stuff that um, I constantly make mistakes on or second guess or, you know, um, see you later. And these are the things that a lot of times, like when you come back to your code six months later, it's so much clearer what you should have done. And, you know, I, I, I'm still kind of struggling with why didn't I know that at the time? And, you know, am I wrong now? Was I wrong then? I, I don't know, but, um, these are just some kind of guiding principles for thinking about things at a high level, a very large organizational level and, um, you know, even architectural. And so, um, we've got a couple strategies here for how to kind of deal with um, these kind of larger level concepts. And so uh, we'll dive into that. But first, um, I thought there's a pretty cool allegory here. Um, if you think about a large organization, we'll just say uh, Amazon, um, their end goal, like if they could you know, have a little uh, magic wand or something and they had one wish, um, they might ask for a single system to do everything. It's completely tightly tuned and integrated to do everything for their entire business. So you could kind of imagine how absurd that is to think about, you know, maybe using amazon.com for the entire business and having it be one application with single sign on and uh, upgraded all at, you know, at once. It's, it's kind of ridiculous to think about it, but I could think uh, I, I can see how that could be a good goal. You know, everyone's been frustrated, at least the business users with them logging into the personnel website and then the ad administrative uh, portal for the, the website, then going to see how things look uh, to the customers and then, you know, logging in somewhere else to check their email. And we use all these various tools. And so um, there's a lot of overhead and a lot of switching around with that. And we lose a lot of stuff because there is no integration. So, you know, you can imagine if uh, a, your company kind of controlled all communication, which is a bit scary, but you can imagine, you know, the, the power uh, that might be had if say, uh, your email was completely integrated with your system, right. And you could do things like respond to emails and make things happen. And, um, you know, we're waving that magic wand there, but it's just kind of, um, defining a goal for like our, our perfect world state here. And since that is pretty much uh, ridiculous and never going to happen for <laughs> any sort of um, company of any size, even, uh, you'd be, you'd be, it, it's just absurd. It's something we're thinking about, but, um, the idea here is to contrast in, in, in terms of uh, real world, right? So what we do is we try to figure out how to modularize parts. Maybe we take amazon.com and we split it up and, and we have 
uh, the admin portal we have, the customer website, we have that, uh, you know, the payroll website, whatever. And, and uh, we include third party things like, um, you know, email or Microsoft Word or, you know, whatever. We use all these various tools where they make sense because it just isn't worth writing software and trying to integrate that because we'll just never get done. So what we're trying to do now is trying to figure out how to modulize things in such a way that it does make sense and that we do get the benefits of integration without losing more in the process of having to build and maintain this stuff. So we're trying to figure out where to draw those lines and trying to find those lines um, that make sense between a monolithic app and so many um, kind of small microservices that's just, a, um, I guess, a kind of a mosquito swarm, right? <laughs> that's kind of the opposite system. Imagine you have like one little tool that does one little thing. It, it, it basically imagine you're... Uh, you know, your uh, marketing department trying to, to use like Linux, literally, you know, no UI bash all day long to do all the work to kind of email via Pine, whatever. So that's kind of the opposite uh, end of the spectrum there. So um, they give us three um, guiding principles and we're going to be focusing on one of these today. I'm just going to mention the other two. Um, the first is context and that's the one that we're, um, that I'm going to be talking about uh, the most tonight. And, um, and that basically d deals with where we draw those lines, how we draw them, how do we keep them separate, and how do we keep them clean. Um, the other two are distillation and um, large-scale structure, which really just kind of build on context a little bit and um, talk about kind of keeping that context pure and how to um, how to grow things a little bit bigger. So we'll save that for another time. But first. I want to talk a little bit about model integrity and the kind of the guiding principle behind uh, these contexts and keeping things split up is that we want to maintain model integrity. But like those, that's a pretty abstract term, right? Like what, what is, what is uh, model integrity mean to you, Alan? I would think, seeing as how we've already talked about it in the past, that it's got to do with the invariance, right? Making sure that the state of the object is always good, right? Like the, it can never be in a bad state. So I think that's I think that's what they'd mean by this. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much what they say. But like, have you ever gotten a ticket that said you need to clean up some model integrity? <laughs> yeah, that's not using the ubiquitous language, is it? Right. But so what is the ubiquitous language? Like how can we you know, like what what do they really mean here? I I would say that I mean, if you're talking about your particular domain, you're going to say something like uh if you're talking about an order system, right? And and somebody places an order for an item, you're never going to allocate inventory that you didn't get paid for at the same time, right? Like it's a rule like that, making sure that there is a transaction that says these either all end up getting flipped or they don't, right? That I, I think that's what they're getting at. Yeah, so that's definitely an example of integrity. Um, it's kind of persistence integrity, right? Um, and... Uh, so I'm trying to kind of take that and move that a little bit more general, right? I, I, and as soon as I hear the, the word integrity, I think about database, I think about at atomic uh, interactions, I think about things like foreign keys, stuff like that, that kind of um, enforce integrity. But what does it mean to have code integrity or model integrity? And so um, reading uh, in the book, it kind of gives a couple examples um, where you can think about different teams of, of programmers kind of taking the same rules and the same notions 
and um, having slightly different interpretations, maybe kind of skewed by their own biases based on whatever they're building. Um, but taking that and kind of um, inventing their own code to deal with the same types of problems and then those things kind of mismatching with the, the kind of stuff that maybe my team is doing. And so um, what we're saying here is that integrity is a measure of how similar these conceptual metals, uh, models are and, and therefore how similar the code is. And so um, one example I, I like to hear is that um, you can imagine that uh, a programmer got a ticket to um, allow a, a customer to um, you know delete their information. And so maybe this programmer A went in and they uh, you know added a new status and maybe they um, created a history and a record table to show that the person was deleted, the customers were deleted, and that um, you know they were they were logged appropriately um, when the the person who maybe initiated the action yada yada. And then we call it a few years later, program B has a task to remove customers based on some sort of batch process. You know maybe they got a spreadsheet of you know customers who. Um, you know, complain to the Better Bureau of Business or whatever, and so we want to delete them out of the system. And so they might just do a little loop there and literally just um, update the column but not know about the history. And so now we've got some maybe reports that are going to be having some fishy numbers or, or maybe some other stuff. You can imagine a couple of years later, you know, the other uh, another way of solving the problem would maybe be to just delete the records. And if you don't have... Um, that behavior kind of solidified then they might just delete the rows and the history table is going to be screwed because it doesn't have that, um, that foreign key there. But, um, and you know, in this example, like with using a database, you can use things like foreign keys and triggers to enforce that integrity. But I don't really know how to do that in code. I, this is something that I think all of us have struggled with, right? You go to look, you, you go to do something, and you do your best to find if it already exists somewhere. But how do you find it? How did somebody else name it? Do coding standards would they have fixed that problem? I mean, you know, th there's there's too many variables that come into play when something like that exists. Yep. And if you don't have some sort of layer or library that's set up to handle that kind of behavior that people know to go to then I don't know how you enforce it, especially when you have, you know, dozens of programmers or hundreds of programmers in some situations. Or 18,000 or, you know, however many Microsoft's got or uh, Google. Right. Yeah, it just gets out of control. And even you can imagine a small team, like um, say I go out and I write some little email utility that logs and grabs the settings from here and there and it sends an email. Someone else comes along and they've got just some little task and they just do a system.sendmail type thing. You know, um, now, they may have skirted any sort of issues I, I may have had about, say, like whitelisting or preventing certain users from getting emails or, or you know, maybe um, thresholding, sending emails too often. This person didn't know about that stuff. They didn't know about the code I wrote. Um, maybe they're not even in the same um, bounded context, meaning the same, uh, in this case, the same application. Maybe they're writing a little uh, executable that kind of stands alone or maybe, a, you know, a different um, application or website. Uh, entirely. And now they're kind of skirting the rules that I set up. I may not know that they're skirting the rules. And so we, um, we've got an integrity problem, right? We've got a problem with model integrity. Are you talking to me? Did I write some sort of <laughs> utility recently that skirted your whitelist? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, um, totally, totally metaphorical, uh, not metaphorical. Anyway, hypothetical. Um, it is. And uh, so, you know, even if it was 100% feasible for a, a company, a company to uh, or a large organization to enforce that, uh, 
it may not even be worth it. And uh, that's one thing that I kind of got thought was really cool in the chapter. Um, and we'll come, we'll touch back on, on that in a little bit. But um, the amount of complexity sometimes that it takes to enforce perfect integrity across any sort of large system, um, it's it's no joke. And so sometimes you got to be a little you know pragmatic and take anything we say with a a, a grain of salt. Um, certainly, I'm always uh, uh, you know <laughs> eating a lot of salt, I guess. <laughs> uh, but uh, they did give us um, this is kind of an aside in the chapter, um, but uh, I thought it was pretty interesting anyway. Uh, they give us uh, first. Uh, they give us four rules uh, or four risks for um, over ambitious unification, and uh, I like to call this like the uh, the new system syndrome. When you start working on something new that's supposed to replace, you know, one, two, three old systems, and um, every time there's a problem uh, while this is being worked on, someone says, "Oh, we'll fix it in a new system." We'll fix it in the new system, or this is going to be totally different in the new system. And you know, next you know, two years later, the, the new system still hasn't shipped. It's still not done. It's got all sorts of such problems. But they actually identify four factors that lead to that. And so I thought that these are like four things that you could um, consider when you're thinking about doing a, a rewrite. And one is uh, too many legacy replacements attempted at once. So that's I, so huge. Yeah, and I think about it as just kind of keeping the scope small, like rather than trying to replace your entire business with the flip of ones which like maybe kind of break it off into little chunks and um, deal with it in, in pieces. Well, dude, we've talked about this in the past, right? It may not even be multiple systems. It could even be just one system yep. that has so much complexity in it that, you know, to say, hey, we're going to replace this system is is naive usually at best because – the amount of time and effort it takes to just reverse engineer and pull out all the business logic, right, for your operation to run smoothly, it's nearly impossible. So it makes a lot more sense to, if you're going to do anything, phase out a piece at a time, right? A very small domain that you can iterate on. Yep. And uh, oftentimes, uh, larger projects will actually bog down just because the coordination exceeds the abilities. And the abilities don't necessarily mean the skill, but also just, um, you know, the head count. Like, people yeah. have other stuff, they have lives, and they have other obligations that they need to do. And so, um, it just may not be worth it. Um, the coordination, may, it just may not be possible. Um, also, uh, there are applications with specialized requirements. And so, um, you may have to cheat some rules. And um, you'll see this sometimes, like, when... Um, there's some interesting quirks in the old system that you thought were bugs, but actually had some some good side effects. Uh, and I'm sure everyone's uh, it was dealt a with feature. That. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you comment out that piece of crap code, and uh, all of a sudden uh, everyone's getting their orders for free. Right. And uh, the last one they had here was um, uh, yeah, additional complexity required to do everything may not be worth the gain. And an example like there is. Um, you've probably seen accounting pack packages or maybe marketing or something where um, they'll do 80% of their job in one system and then they'll flip to the old system to do something old. Um, or um, I'm sure like, I'm sure everyone's had a customer service experience like this where they uh, dealt with somebody on the phone and they're like, hold on, let me check the old system. And uh, sometimes it's just worth it to, to keep that around at least while transitioning. And sometimes even forever, you know, if, if you've got a, a good 80, 20 rule where you can solve 80% of your use case, with uh, you know a fraction of the effort it would take to get to 100, then you know maybe that's a, a pragmatic compromise. Yep. So what do we need to do? 
Um, the idea behind this whole chapter is basically to consciously decide on strategies and then be consistent about uh, enforcing them. And what we kind of said before is like, you can't, you can't 100% guarantee this integrity, right? We don't have foreign keys we can put on programmers keyboards or, um, we don't have, um, you know, triggers or we do have some tools, but they're not great. And so we want to start by taking inventory of what we got and mapping our, our bounded context. And then we've got a couple strategies we're going to lay out here for, um, for trying, uh, dismally to, uh, keep our, um, modeling integrity up. And, uh, we said bond, bounded context a couple times, but I haven't really defined it. And, um, it's kind of hard to define it. Um, sorry about the ums, man, I'm driving myself crazy guys. <laughs> I apologize without outlaw here to keep me straight. I'm just, I'm just coming around. <laughs> but the, the idea behind a bounded context is to draw a line around some related functionality. And it can actually mean a lot of different things. But for me, the easiest way to conceptualize it is to start with an application. You might have that customer facing website. You might have that admin. Those could count as two different bounded contexts and things like the schema of the database go along with that. And so it's not just an area of code. It's not just a namespace. It can be an area of code. It can be a namespace. It can be a library, but high level, the easiest way to think about it is to start with the application. I think. So tell me this. How does that relate to your aggregates and your aggregate roots? Because it sounds like they're sort of similar, right? Because your aggregate root encompasses this entity. Well, I guess that'd be the thing, right? Your bounded your bounded context would be around a number of aggregate roots at this point, right? Like that's your higher level abstraction, your grouping of your domain. Right. And the uh, aggregate roots specifically specify that all input kind of comes in through the root and then gets disseminated. And this isn't about that so much. It's you basically draw a big circle around things that kind of make up a, a part. And I want to stay away from the word module because that's got some other connotations and languages. But uh, some other examples might be like a command line interface. Like if you're like Amazon Web Services, you might have a set of web services that people can use to call to set up uh, virtual machines, whatever. But you may also have, um, you know, a little bash library or a PowerShell component or something that makes that easier. You've also got the website where people can control. You've got the web services. Um, so there's a, a lot of different options and each of those might be considered different bounded contexts because they each have borders. And uh, one example that the book gave that was really good was a cell in your body, right? They've got um, <laughs> vacuoles, they've got DNA, they've got RNA, they've got all these little pieces and uh, there's a lot in common between them, but they also have these membranes or cell walls around them that control the inputs and outputs. And so those are great examples of bounded contexts because they have hard boundaries between them. And sometimes uh, the boundaries in code aren't necessarily as clear um, and that's something we need to work on. And so um, the book actually, I thought this was kind of interesting. A, a lot of the advice they give in this section is actually um, managerial or um, project managerial as well as uh, code related, which I thought was pretty interesting because uh, it's not just important to have um, your code divided up into these bound contexts, but you also want to kind of organize your development teams around it. Like you don't want um, people working kind of helter-skelter all over the place because that um, 
makes it harder to maintain that that integrity in the model. And it, cause, just because it makes it easier to, for people to do things like the examples we said before, like reinvent something because they don't realize that there's already an established pattern for it. So how do you define these bounded or how do you talk between bounded contexts? If, if you've got something like that, what are, what are you doing so that if, if you have, I, I guess in our order system, you have orders, you have customer service and you have accounting, right? So if something comes through customer service and they say, Oh, the customer's unhappy, let's refund it. And then they, in their bounded cost, their bounded context for customer service say, Hey, we're going to refund this order. That's now going to have to head over to an accounting bounded context more than likely. Right. If, if those are two different department apps that are being worked on, yep. how, how does that inner or outer bound, bounded context work? Sure, and and what we have there are translation layers, and there's a couple um, a couple types of uh, translation layers that we're gonna be talking about. But basically, the idea is just that you're gonna have um, some interfaces that you can call, and some interfaces that can be called uh, from you. That and those are things that you're gonna set up uh, to facilitate this two way communication. So, as a, in my customer service bounded context, I'm gonna have a call somewhere there that says, um, you know cancel order or something and it's responsible for translating that message into something that can communicate uh, with an accounting service. Okay. So let me, let me draw this picture a little bit out of what I have in my head right now. So last episode we talked about aggregate routes, aggregates and various entities and, you know, objects that, that flow down through there. Right. So at the very top was the aggregate route and anything that needed to happen to anything that it surrounded had to go through that, right? And then it could work down in there. It sounds like this bounded context is now the layer on top of that so that it's kind of drawing the box around these these bounded contexts. So you're talking about having an interface, like a true, like, you know, coded interface to saying at this bounded context, you can place an order, right? And so... If you want to place an order, it's going to call the bounded context place order thing. Then it's going to go down to the aggregate route that it knows to reach out to and do something there. Is that is that what we're talking about? Like if we're peeling the air layers of the onion here right now, currently the bounded context is on the outside. Aggregate routes are the next level in and then so on down. Does that sound right? Right. Yeah. If you want to interact with, with my domain service and I want you to call some sort of web service or I want you to put a, a file in a folder or something on a queue that I, you know, I can be pulling for. I don't want your service mucking around in my database. And that happens, you know, real, realistically, we're going to be sharing data. We're going to be sharing databases and, and whatnot. But ideally, those behaviors are going to drive those changes rather than um, just changing the state on us willy nilly. That's that's interesting. You know what's funny? It, just as an aside here, because I'll forget this in a minute. My entire career, like I've pretty much always had access to databases, right? No matter what it was, whether it was an ordering system or some sort of analytics stuff we were doing, whatever, I almost always had access to the underlying data. And so what you said earlier about batch processing, you know, something went wrong in the system. Oh, let's just go update all the tables. The more... The further I've come in my career, the less I like having access to that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
for the very reason that you're talking about with the integrity, right? Because it's too easy to miss something unless you have just crazy intimate knowledge about the entire system, you're going to miss it. And you still lose things like you mentioned earlier with the logging. If you, if you did need to batch update, oh man, all these customer orders didn't get processed, right? And you knew the tables where you needed to flip all those switches. You can go set all those bits, but now you lost your entire audit trail, right? The, the more that I think about this stuff and the more that I've, I've worked in systems over time, the more I feel like somebody does need, I mean, somebody's got to be writing that persistence layer, right? So I'm not saying that you don't have access to the database. I'm saying that you should never actually be writing any kind of processes directly on the data. You should be flowing through the business logic that somebody has already written in your application. And it's so important because there's so many minute little things that you'll miss and and you can't recover. Yeah, absolutely. So, and if that's not an option, and you know, realistically, sometimes it's not if the the issue is important enough, important enough for the problem bad enough. Um, ideally, you're going to want to get someone who's close to the problem, someone who really knows that uh, that uh, bounded context really well, like a developer who maybe wrote it and minimized your chance of error. But still, the risk is too high, right? Like it almost makes sense to somehow wrap that that bounded context or whatever that code is, write your executable that way, right? Don't write some update statements against the database because unless every single piece of logic, logging, audit trail, everything can be done from the database, which a lot of times can't, then you're going to miss something. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, there's times when like the website's crashing because there's a cycle in a category or something and like... You know, totally. you're not going to start writing uh, writing some web services so that you can tackle that, right? You're going to fix it as soon as, as soon as possible. Yep, totally. I mean, it, it's not a, a one-shoe-fits-all or one-size-fits-all. I mean, it's it's definitely something, though, that I feel like more people should think about is, you know, if if I do have a problem, then maybe I need to improve my model. And then that way, when I improve my model then this problem goes away, right? Like the, you start reducing the one-offs and the hacks. But anyways, go ahead. Yeah, especially when those one-offs become two-off, three-off, four-offs. <laughs> That's usually what happens, right? It's yeah. never a one-off. And you start writing scripts to do your one-offs. <laughs> <laughs> Automating your one-offs. Yeah. So uh, two types of problems uh, occur in these bonded, bonded contexts that are common. Um, one is duplicate contact duplicate concepts which are when two entities represent the same concept and uh concept is a, an interesting word here because it can mean um like the same entity like the same table but it can also mean the same type of behavior like you've got two buttons that do things similarly and you kind of copy and paste that behavior in two different places now they want to do uh, you know add a privilege or something around that button well now you've got two places that you need to maintain and hopefully you remember because there's, you know, we don't have those kind of referential integrity locks like we do on a database. And so, you know, it's up to you, the coder, to know to do that and then to execute it properly. And if that fails, maybe, you know, a code reviewer. Uh, otherwise, your customer is going to find that bug for you. Hmm. Um, the other is um, what they call false cognates, which is like that word cognates. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> 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 like, I mean, come on, there's, there's no other better word for that. But uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, deals with ambiguities or disagreements in the model terms. Uh, and uh, an example I came up here with, which I thought was kind of interesting, was like uh, you can imagine in a, in a database a customer table, right? And maybe um, the customer table gets filled in every time someone registers for the website. 
But strictly speaking, a customer is someone who buys something from you. And so we may be using that table for, you know, login information as well as customers. And so later down the road, when an accounting person says like, hey, give me every customer who's been to the site in the last six months, you might give them a much bigger report than they were expecting because you included people that didn't actually purchase anything because they were in the customer table. But to them, customer means something different. Because you gave them a false cognate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I false cognated them. <laughs> uh, that, I, and still, that's one of my biggest things with the domain-driven design thing is just some of the the definitions and the vocabulary you got to use. Yeah. Ridiculous. So uh, now we're on to the actual strategy part. So we've talked about how hard it is to, to kind of keep that integrity, but now we're actually going to give you a, a couple of tangible solutions that you can go and start running with today. Uh, and the first, uh, and a lot of these are going to be familiar. We're kind of we'll kind of skip around a little bit and keep things moving quickly. But um, the first is just continuous integration, and um, that basically de- deals with code reviews, um, merging changes infrequently, and running automated tests. Uh, a lot of times, that'll include deploys and and whatnot. It's basically just a, a common strategy for any sort of organization of any size. I'm sure it by now has some sort of continuous integration uh, solution set up. And the idea there is that you're going to catch problems and uh, be able to fix them quickly before they propagate out and become worse. So I think uh, probably most people are familiar with that. If not, you should Google continuous integration because it's really, really kind of cool. And that's your DevOpsy type stuff. Yep. The idea there is that you check in a change um, and then there's someone out there watching for changes. There's some sort of server out there that's watching for changes and we'll automatically bring those in. We'll do a build. We'll run the test. If it fails, it'll send an email, something like that. So it's really useful, especially as team size grows. Yes, especially. And next strategy is a context map. And this one um, I thought was really interesting because interesting it basically just involves whiteboarding your organization, right? So there might be a, a big block called website and a big block called schedule tasks and a, you know, a big block called CLI or whatever. Um, it can be even broken down more than that. But basically the idea is just to, to draw out your bounded context and draw some lines, um, map the terrain, um, and kind of map the people and the organization around it as well, like who owns what, what areas. Uh, and, and you want to do this based on how things are rather than how you want them to be because, you know, you may never get to where you're going, right? Realistically. Yeah, the pie in the sky talks usually take up way more time. And a lot of times no traction is made on them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one thing I thought they said was funny, it's like, while you're mapping, if you find something uh, that's broken or bad, then just draw a dragon and move on. Don't don't try to fix it here. Uh, don't try to force the people into the boxes that they aren't actually in. Hmm. It's going to be really tempting, especially if you've got a diagram that's almost symmetrical. You know, it almost makes like a nice, clean Christmas tree hierarchy. So there's like that one person. We, we got to make this look right. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of times I think that'll happen if like if you've got two or three people or, or two more teams that kind of jointly own something and you're not sure who to put whatever. So there's like this weird temptation to be like, well, let's give it to this guy because they've only got um, three items and this other person has four. And so there's this weird kind of a, uh, it, like draw to mapping things in, in a way that looks nice on paper rather than how things are. And so yeah. it just can be misleading. 
And then people, when people see organizational maps like that and they see those kind of incongruities that don't map up with reality, they just dismiss the chart. That's true. That's, that's very true. Yeah. And also by drawing things out, um, there's, uh, you also want to kind of give them good names and those names actually help enforce those boundaries because you're, um, you're bolstering that ubiquitous language that you're, you're building. Right. So by having these kind of teams or, or um, driven areas now, um, you know, you're kind of building a community around it, a very small community. So the next strategy is shared kernel. And, um, this one's probably something that, uh, every programmer's done at one point. And it's basically, uh, if you've ever taken, uh, a library out and made like a core or maybe <laughs> call it, you know, library or, or something that has, um, logic that's called by more than one place. So if you've say got a command line interface and a set of web services, then you might have, um, both of those being separate projects, but you'll have a, a shared library in common that, uh, does all the kind of decision-making, whatever. Like your logins, your authentication, your authorization, that kind of stuff. Yep, all that sort of stuff. And then the things that are specific to the command line ideally will be in the command line project and the things that are specific to the web service ideally are going to be in that web service project. Uh, it doesn't always happen that cleanly, but uh, and you'll know next time you start to run the command line interface or you get a call from the <laughs> customer saying that uh, it's you know um, failing because uh, HTTP context is null or something. <laughs> hey, wait, I've got a question for you. And this is backing up probably a few things, uh, a few items past. So you mentioned that you should have organizational teams, like even coding teams that surround bounded contexts, right? Because then people are fully aware of things in those bounded contexts. And that, I get it. I, I, I get the reason for it. But what do you say to the effect that when you do that, you have teams working in silos? So there could be something that every team uses that mm -hmm. or, or does that could all be done better if there was a unified way of doing it, right? Or, or even at that point, teams sort of get tunnel vision because they're locked into thinking about particular ways of doing something, right? What is the solution to something like that? Because if, if, again, I get the whole point of putting people in bounded domain areas because now you have super knowledge throughout that entire domain, right? And people know how to use it. But now these people have very limited sight into the entire application as a whole and what it means to the business. And on top of that, you could be reinventing the wheel, you know, 10 different ways, Right. So because that was one of the other things that you said earlier is let's not recreate it. Let's let's maintain the integrity. But it sounds like the integrity is for the domain, not necessarily your entire application as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine with, with uh, bigger organizations, this is even crazier. But um, I think the answer here that the book wants to, to give is um, project management and just kind of dev management, maybe some architecture mixed in there. Um, people that are um, knowledgeable enough about the big picture to say, hey, that sounds like something Team B was working on last week. Why don't you go check check with them? And they don't necessarily have to have um, a, like an iron fist about, you know, um, deciding that things should be uh, shared or whatever. But they, it might just be just a little tickler in their brain that says, hey, go talk to you know, go talk to Susie. I think she did something last week. And then hopefully those people to get together and we can kind of cross those organizational boundaries and, you know, maybe get a new bounded context out of it, right? Maybe make a new That's shared us. library or something. 
But right. I, I definitely think that's one downside to having the silos like, and they don't really address it very well. Cool. Uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate. Um, yeah, and then basically uh, they tell you to make sure to consult the other teams when you've got a shared kernel, which is um, you know kind of sort of common sense, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, one thing I did think was interesting there is like this is an argument against uh, a certain organizational pattern that's really common where you have like the C sharp developers and the JavaScript developers and the database developers, and there'll be three separate teams. But um, what you're doing there is you're owning that technology stack, not necessarily the the domain. So this is kind of an argument for organizing things by uh, feature or by, you know, bounded context. Yeah. I've never, I've really never been a fan of the split up by ability or skill set. Because I, I feel like that's so close-minded. I, I mean, I get it. Like some back in the day or a lot of organizations still do it, right? Like there's database people that that give you a proc and your hands off to everything, right? You just take what you get. And I feel like, yeah, I get the separations there. But the problem is, is now you can't come up with more creative or better ways to handle things in some cases, right? And 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 you lose focus of the business at that point And really you're saying, no, you're just going to write the code that translates this or, or whatever. And I don't know. One of the things that's always been a problem for me, and especially now that I'm a manager, is, is not prescribing how things should be done, right? I mean, part of being a programmer is being creative. Part of it is it's an art, right? Like, yeah, I've, I've said this, I don't know how many times. If I give this, if, if I take a task and you take a task and Outlaw takes a task, we're going to do it three different ways. There's no question. They're probably not even going to look halfway the same, right? Even given the same expected outputs or requirements, it's all going to be different. And I think you need that leeway. And I think that's when you start separating teams at those various different layers that it you lose something, right? You, you lose that integrated piece of a team that I don't know. I mean, you gain some skills, but, but you lose overall business view. So anyways. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see it all the time when I'm like a, say a database developer, someone will, will del- deliver a proc that, um, you know, matches up with their expectation expectations of the, uh, the requirements. But when it gets, you know, run in the context of the website, it does something that totally doesn't do what anyone expected. Um, and uh, you remind me of, of uh, a saying I like a lot, which uh, in programming there are no correct solutions. Uh, but right. in this case, at least, there definitely would be two wrong ones. <laughs> um, so the next one is a, a different kind of strategy for organization, um, which they call the the customer supplier teams. And they talk about a dichotomy here where um, teams can sometimes be uh, organized actually kind of like we, we talked about with by technology where you've got one team that's considered downstream and one team that's upstream. And so maybe the, uh, the, the Java people are, uh, writing web services. And then there's a, a team of JavaScript developers that are consuming those services and doing stuff with them. In that case, the Java team is downstream, right? And the, th- the changes they make need to be reflected and used by the people upstream. And they say in the book, like, you know what, those, we don't like those terms. We want the downstream people to treat those upstreamers as customers. So we're going to change the terminology here and we're going to call this customers and suppliers. So the customers, they're, you know, ultimately kind of more important, right? And they need to have their needs met or else the whole thing is dysfunctional. So, 
what needs to happen there is these teams need to, you know, communicate somehow, maybe through a mediator, maybe, you know, meetings, but whatever, doesn't matter. Um, but the idea is just to make sure that they're on the same page and that the customers are driving the requirements and they're not getting a bunch of stuff delivered that makes no sense to them. And it, it actually, um, they go out of their way to emphasize that we should really call them that instead of upstream and downstream. This is kind of emphasizes the, uh, the um, kind of uh, the more important relationship there, I guess. And it also it helps um, with problems of, with the teams moving at different speeds. You know, you can imagine places where the JavaScript people are mocking out services. And then when the services finally get delivered, they don't meet that expectation or vice versa, right? The, the uh, Java people are pumping out these services and the UI can't make sense of them. Like they're not organized in such a way that makes sense for the final product. And of course, you're going to want to write tests at those boundaries. And another strategy, um, I like this one, and they call it the conformist, the conformist strategy. It's basically, uh, if you can't beat them, well, what can you do? You can give up, right? If Let's say uh, if you're a, a customer supplier here and supplier is not meeting your needs, then you just do it on your own. You mock the data, you find some other way around. Um, it's not going to be pretty. Um, you could also take responsibility for the translation, which is not too different from abandon. I guess abandon is more of like a you know third-party solution where you could just totally ditch it and just do something else entirely. Um, but second is more about uh, just owning more of that process. Maybe you start writing some of the services. Um, and the third one is just give up and um, adopt their model. And this is something that's probably more apt in like a third-party situation. Like um, say you're working with uh, PayPal and they've got some kind of interesting differences between them and like traditional credit card checkout. So you may adapt your entire checkout process so that it accommodates them and maybe credit cards become uh, more of a uh, attack on to the PayPal methodology, even though PayPal may be a smaller uh, percentage of the pie. And that's pretty gross. Um, that, that's kind of like a, we're going to talk about this here in a little bit, but um, that's a big reason, the driving um, reason behind the anti-corruption layers is it prevents that sort of leaking and that sort of poisoning. And so, uh, you know, they do kind of uh, let you know that sometimes you just got to take a little poison. <laughs> hey, listeners, do you hate spending time checking logs, you know, running ad hoc queries, maybe searching your emails for clues on production support issues? It's especially bad when the customer tells you about the problem. If that's the case, then you should take a look at airbreak.io. It's a service for alerting and monitoring so that you can proactively address issues and spend less time playing catch up, especially important with customers. Now, Airbreak supports .NET in all major programming languages and platforms, and you can see them all on their GitHub page. There's also a free trial, which thanks to your feedback, no longer requires a credit card number, so you can check it out risk-free at http colon slash slash getairbreak.com slash cb. Again, 30-day trial, no credit card, getairbreak.com slash cb. All right, so the next strategy we want to talk about is the anti-corruption layer. And we want to spend a little extra time on this one um, because it sounds cool. Uh, wait a second, wait a second. Is it anti or is it anti <laughs> I think this is important. I don't know that we can get much out of this without settling on the correct way of saying this. Now, which one did I say? You don't remember? No. What do you think you said? Anti. 
You did. All right, then that's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> All right, we'll go with anti. Well, now I, I don't know now. <laughs> I'm just not going to say it that often anymore. This layer that we're talking about now. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so um, the idea with the anti anti-corruption layer uh, is to provide a little bit of buffer. Um, and because even greenfield systems, like brand new systems that you're uh, creating from scratch, almost always have to be integrated with legacy systems. Like there's not too many systems that aren't connected to anything anymore. And so uh, dealing with these two different conceptual models uh, with the thing that you're writing and the things that you're uh, interopting with um, can get really nasty. And a lot of times those other external models can have kind of an unfair influence on your model and they can actually overwhelm the intent. And next thing you know, you're programming around them rather than your own business needs. And so the goal is to create a layer that lets you push these things to the boundaries. And we've kind of used this phrase for a lot of different things, especially when talking about like solid or just different coding principles. You know, we don't want to let those third parties, even if they're, first parties uh, invade and influence uh, our um, our decisions without those being conscious decisions, right? We don't want this leaking. We don't want it poisoning. We don't want it influencing. It's okay if we decide, you know, to, to do this stuff, but we just want to be really careful about it. Well, this is where some of the stuff that he talked about was kind of interesting to me because he was talking about the fact that you might even be aware of this external system that you're integrating with. And so you make assumptions, right? The data looks the same as what's in your system. And so you think that you could just map it over and that assumption can really screw you up, right? Like it, it you could have all kinds of corrupt data in your system at that point. Uh, the other thing that he said was um, that does it, but, Oh, doggone it. What did I say? Yeah, that, that's exactly what it was. That assuming just because you see it and it looks the same, making one little assumption can really mess you up. And so that's why this actually matters here is having that layer, even if it looks like it's all the same. Yeah, I've seen a funny example where um, there was like a system that would keep track of inventory changes and it would send a message uh, kind of out on a queue that would say that the inventory changed. And it started... Um, it started out by having the entire uh, inventory count. So you would say, you know, like um, widgets 99. And uh, over time, at some point, that changed to, to reflect um, the change in items. So a 99 would mean there were 99 new items added to inventory. And a negative one would mean, um, you know, one item has been removed from inventory. But there were still some systems that were kind of expecting it to be the total inventory. And so they were just going crazy and uh, having the numbers updated all the time to really no low numbers. Uh, and so it caused all sorts of problems and uh, ended up needing a lot of fixing, unfortunately. But, um, <laughs> you know, the field names didn't change, right? And they were ambiguous enough and so that it wasn't obvious. And that's a perfect example. It, it's a number. The types matched, the name of the column matched, everything matched except how it was being used. Yep. And that's, that is the key. And another example I kind of gave earlier is the, the PayPal thing. And even some credit card processors, um, a lot of kind of, um, I don't want to say less mature, but just like a lot of simpler implementations of credit cards will um, kind of auth and charge in one step. 
but as things get more complicated, sometimes you'll need to authorize and then as things ship in order to keep like the liabilities straight for accounting, you'll kind of um, charge that card in pieces. And so um, PayPal is even weirder sometimes because they've got some weird rules around and there's a whole authorization step where you actually jump out to the website and jump back and um, they've got some different rules. And so if you're not careful, um, those rules can end up leaking into and influencing your design. And so you end up kind of ham-fisting other things that may even be more important in order to kind of fit that model. Next thing you know, you're trying to explain to accounting, you know, why their liability numbers are off. And yeah, obviously you're the one that's wrong, right? But Well, uh, yeah. I mean, even talking about some of the specifics there, I, I remember that one of the things that was different was the authorization, right? In some cases on a credit card, that'll lock funds for a certain amount of time. With PayPal, it might do it somewhat like that, but it's not exactly the same. So again, those two domains operate a little bit differently of each other. And so if you make that assumption that they're the same, which we might have at some point, that that creates all kinds of problems that, that really are a pain to go back and, and turn around. Yeah, and what I think um, uh, what I may have mistakenly done at the time was try to kind of um, model the credit cards after the PayPal because ca- PayPal was the same but a little more complicated. And so I ended up having these weird kind of do-nothing methods in the credit card for things like reauthorizing or whatever or changing the amounts. Um, and it's, it's, it was just dirty, and it meant that I was letting someone else drive the bus. Um, and, you know, so just it doesn't line up well with everything else we've been talking about in domain-driven design which is letting the domain and letting your needs drive the changes and drive the code and keeping everything in lockstep. And you know what? That also goes back to a clean code episode where we were talking about integrating with third-party libraries is if you create your, you know what you need to happen, right? So you know your business need, create interfaces that you adapt to those business needs. So you basically wrap those third parties and you make those things operate the way that you need them to operate as opposed to like what you said, you know, you took the more complicated one and said, well, they both have the same type functionality. Let me try and cram the simpler one into the more complex one and it didn't work. Right. And that's one of those lessons learned after the fact, because it's like, wow, I had no idea, but that's where if you try and if you code to your third parties and you take into consideration what your actual domain needs are, then you can save yourself a lot of pain. Yeah, that can be difficult though, because if something really does have like these different steps and it needs different hooks in order to integrate, then you can't just slap a, a simple interface on it, right, and treat them the same. So it's difficult, but we're trying to minimize those sort of things. We want these pluggable pieces. And, you know, we always make the argument, especially about databases that, you know, you're not going to be switching from SQL server to MySQL in any sort of non-trivial app, right? It's just not going to happen. But we still want to kind of abstract things as if that were the case because it protects us from other things. And I've definitely seen applications that um, are very driven by SQL. And so um, even, I mean, every decision along the way, uh, and it's probably because I wrote them that way, has been very much driven by that persistence layer. And that's an example of something where, uh, there's an outside influence that's um, influencing my design. And so now I'm, I'm thinking about the application and I'm even making like, you know, web pages or, or widgets that are now influenced by my persistence layer, which is, is you know, kind of wrong. Like it should be influenced by my customer primarily. The need, right. The yeah. need. And I will say, so 
that whole argument about you're not going to change from SQL Server to Oracle or to MySQL or Postgres or whatever, I used to be 150% behind that. Where I have differed now is I still agree with that. I don't think you're going to change the RDBMS behind the scenes most of the time, right? Like you're not going to jump ship from Microsoft to Oracle. You're trading one big cost for another big cost. That's not really the thing. What might happen though is you might need to introduce augmented other technologies, right? So a search engine mm-hmm. for speedier retrieval of things, a, a caching layer, because now, uh, I mean, if you look at Stack Overflow's uh, architectural blog, it, great, filled with amazing amounts of information. I've listened to the guy on other podcasts, and he talks about, yeah, most of, most of our interactions are reads. So we can cache most everything, right? So when you start thinking about not, hey, I'm not going to move from this RDBMS to this RDBMS, but you start thinking about, hey, what other things do I need to augment the stack? So another thing, uh, thinking about relational databases or even Mongo or DocumentDB, another thing you might be thinking about is most people write directly to it, right? Like every book you ever bought was okay, you have this form and now you need to save to the database. It's going to tell you how to write your insert statement and all that, right? The problem is now you've got a direct line to that. What if you wanted to insert a queue so that you could start enforcing read or, or do once actions or retries or any, like that's where the abstractions become important. And and I hope everybody wraps their head around it. Yeah, the the reality is you'll probably never jump from from to a lateral technology probably doesn't matter that's not going to be the case but the other of introducing other technologies to either increase performance or to be able to view more analytics or to you know whatever that's where that's key that's where things start really making sense yeah, and um, one example to think about is like the database thing. Like, what if you decide you want to log all your calls, right? You want to throw some aspects around there. Now, if you have just been directly calling every query, every spot, you have to change like almost every method in your application, right? It's just not going to happen. But if you had some like nice, cleanly factored kind of services written around that, then suddenly that's much more reasonable. Yep. And so, um, so the solution for dealing with these third parties, just like we kind of talked about, is um, creating an isolating layer that handles translation in both ways. And this can look like a service, but it, it doesn't have to be. It could also be a library that you call uh, a DLL. Um, it could be an API that you create for somebody else. Um, and uh, the most common way of actually building these things is a combination of what they call facades, adapters, and translators. And these roughly translate to the um, gang of four uh, at least the facade and the adapter they have a little special definition of the adapter, which we'll get to. Uh, and translator is kind of a specialized uh, case that they define here. And facade, uh, I think we actually did an episode on facade, didn't we? We did that and adapters. I don't think we have yeah. translators. Okay, yeah, I think they they made up translator. Um, so <laughs> facade, uh, you should go check out that episode. But it's basically an alternative or simplified interface written strictly in accordance with the other system's model. So it just makes things a little bit easier for you to use. And ideally, I thought this was really interesting. Ideally, they want it to belong in that other bounded context. That's the thing that kind of bugged me when I read this was like, are you really going to have access to be adding code to their particular domain? I, mm-hmm. m- maybe you can add a service over on their side, I think. But that that 
one piece right there jumped out at me. Yeah, and so here's here's how I kind of reconciled that a little bit, right? Imagine our e-commerce, we're, you know, we're Amazon, and we've got a front-end customer-facing website, and on that website, customers can log in, place orders, right, put their credit card information in, whatever. Well, it's also maybe possible for people to call into customer service and um, change their payment method, uh, add items, change items, maybe even place a whole order. Um, you know, that's not outside the realm of normalcy, right? That, that can be expected. So we don't want to duplicate that behavior. And uh, let's just say in this case, we, we want to go ahead and let that behavior live in the front end website. But we want to have the admin kind of make some sort of web, web service call over there and say, hey, place an order. Well, if, if you were trying to model that process like you're a customer, then it's a pain in the butt, right? You got to log in as the person. So suddenly you know, you're trying to like look up the username and password or so, like some somehow kind of hack around that. Then you're going to create a cart. You're going to add those items to the cart. Then you're going to like initiate checkout. And I mean, it's just a pain in the butt, right? To, to kind of like do all these steps. And then if somebody adds a coupon, coupon step or something in the, in the front end website, now you're trying to kind of like model that behavior. And so ideally what you want it is to have your website have a simplified facade for your admin to call that says, you know what, why don't you just pass me a serialized order that's got all the information I need. I don't care how you put it together. Just give me everything I need to, to place an order and I'll just do it. Right. And ideally that code is going to live in the website, which I thought was interesting because I think my first inclination is to kind of do it in customer service, like have it know those steps. But really what you're doing is you're giving intimate knowledge of what's essentially a third party at that part. And mm-hmm. so what they're saying is they prefer the, the facade live over there. And that makes sense. I mean, honestly, it makes it makes sense from the, that's where the domain knowledge, that's where the bounded contest text exists. So it's easy to leverage what's already there. However, it does feel kind of weird for me to be customer service and say, hey, I need you to add me a customer service facade to your website, right? Yep. It, that's, I, I think it makes sense from an ownership perspective because they can guarantee you you know, certain SLAs, right? This, this is what this is supposed to do. If you pass me this, then I can make sure that happens. So I get it from the ownership, but a lot of times when you're integrating with some third party or external system, you don't necessarily have the ability to add to that system. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I think you're just straight up out of luck there, but there's some definitely some nice bits about having a facade over there. Like one, it puts the onus of ownership on them and they're the ones Mm -hmm. that are more likely to know that something needs to be maintained or something something relevant has changed, but also opens the door for other, uh, other clients or other consumers to call. Right. So now if there is that command line interface, or maybe there's a, like a vendor portal where vendors can place orders on behalf of people or, you know, whatever can communicate to the website, then now they can use this, uh, this simplified interface now. So it just yeah, there's like a lots of to benefits it. to it. Just feels kind of weird. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing to say also just to point out, the recommendation is it lives over there, but it doesn't have to. You could still write your own facade on your end and have to deal with all that hairiness like what you talked about, right? Like how do we fake the login? How do we create the cart? How do we do all this? You can create it on your end, but now if that system changes, the onus is on you to know about that and have to respond to it. So th- there's definitely some fragile situations that can come up from that. Yep. 
what they're going to say is like, you know what, if, if it's looking like you're going to have to build a facade on your side, then why don't you consider writing an adapter instead? And the adapter allows your client to use a different protocol than the implementer, which means that you've got something that kind of matches your language and matches your expectations and lets you perform that action. So that would be the case, um, or that could be the case, but isn't necessarily the case where you take that action, you go and log the customer in, you add the cart, you place the order, you go, you know, add the address, select the billing method, whatever. Um, that all can be adapted. And I think the main difference here between the adapter and the facade that they're getting at is that the, the facade is written in their language. It's a simplified, stripped down, it's for them. The adapter is written in your language. And an important distinction that I think gives you get there is that you can have multiple adapters for similar type things. So I can deal with, um, you know, I could say, you know, place order and it may place that order on amazon.com, but Amazon's, you know, a, a big thing, right? They've got, um, smile.amazon.com. They, you know, they, they've got a bunch of subsidiaries, audible.com and they, they, there's a lot of mix matching going on. You know, you can order audible books now on, on amazon.com. And so there's a lot of weird crossover there. And by having adapters, now it's speaking in your language. So I can say place Amazon order or place audible order or, you know, diapers.com order, whatever. Now, that wouldn't really work with facade because the facade is all, all about modeling to their expectations and simplifying their expectations. I mean, talking about this, they, they did bring up the fact that the adapter in this particular case isn't necessarily a, a code-specific type thing. Like when we talked about the adapter pattern previously, right, that's, that is you creating something to make your code work with external code. So it's, it's a layer in between, right? Right. This wasn't necessarily – it's the same general thing thought in that you want your thing to be able to hook up to this external thing, but it was more about the communication between the two, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, yeah, don't mean to mislead you there. You know, it, to me, that was just kind of like an added little, like kind of cool thing about using adapters. Um, but yeah, that's not, absolutely not the main focus. The main focus is that it's in your language. And so that's the main point of this is that um, you're adapting their processes to meet your needs and not the other way around. Facade is... And, that. And it could be communication based, right? Like, so um, it, it might be talking over EDI. And so that adapter is going to be able to know how to go get that data from that external system and bring it into yours. Or it could be going over HTTP or it could be over some sort of binary protocol, right? Like, th I think that's, that's one of the key things to take away from this is that's supposed to be the communication translation between the two. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's also in charge of, uh, I, well, you just said it, but, uh, you know, if you are doing connection string to a database on the same server, or you're calling out to um, a system processor, you're writing to a file or reading from a file, whatever, all of those things are examples of adapting. So you're taking your message and you're adapting it to their needs. Yep. And uh, the translator is the, the third pattern they kind of referenced. And what they said there is the translator is actually kind of a, a little piece of the adapter and the translator is specifically meant to um, translate uh, like concept to concept. And so an example might be um, if you've got one system that uh, passes you JSON and it's got a state ID and you need a uh, state code or they've got um, an F name field and you've got a first name field. And so it's literally 
just about transferring that data. And so it's a little piece of the adapter and the adapter deals with other stuff like, you know, the HTTP context or, you know, or um, transport, um, EDI, whatever. But the translator is literally just data to data. Yeah, the, the translator is kind of dirty, right? Because if you're getting, it, you, you'd have to potentially have a translator for every single type of adapter that you're using or even even different types of objects coming from the same adapters, right? If some stuff's coming across in XML, other stuff's coming across in JSON, other stuff's coming across binary, right? This translator is responsible for taking data out of those, which aren't necessarily objects, right? Like XML is not an object. It's, it's, a hierarchy of tags, you've got to take the data out of that and marshal it into your domain model. And then, and then when your domain model saves or does something and it, maybe it needs to communicate that back out, right? Like your whole point of the order system earlier with customer service, right? Customer service all of a sudden needs to, you know, place an order for a customer, it's going to compile all that stuff and send it out through this adapter to the facade, hopefully, right? And and then at that point, that thing's going to create an order. And that probably needs to return something back across the wire. Who knows how it's coming over? Is it just plain text? Is it XML? Is it JSON? Whatever. It comes back across, probably from the facade, through the adapter, into your translator. And now that translator needs to turn that thing back into say, hey, we got a response. This is the new customer order, right? So it, it's a it's a fairly complex, you know, chain of events that have to happen there. Yep. Absolutely. And, uh, that's it for the three patterns. Um, but, uh, they did give us a couple of rules for consideration, um, for anti-corruption layers. <laughs> and, uh, we'll just kind of go through this real quick. Um, they can be bi-directional. So we kind of talked about that. You can call out, um, you may also offer some services that, uh, allow, uh, other bounded contexts to call into you. Um, you can include uh, the facade for their system if you know if you need to. Uh, preferably, you wouldn't, but uh, you can. You can also have your own facades. Um, one thing they they present, which is true, and I think a lot of people may not, uh, or sometimes we may be so anchored in our code and their code that we may not think about it. But sometimes you can refactor the other system to make your life easier. It may not necessarily be you doing it. You know, you may cut them a couple tickets or, um, you know, it may be you. Maybe you go out to GitHub and make some tweaks to whatever to enable um, what you want to do. Um, but, it's, you know, it's an option and something to kind of keep in mind and try not to be so anchored and you're you know, not invented here. Um, you can consider modifying your model to fit better with theirs. Um, that's part of that leakage. It's, that's kind of what the anti-corruption layer is designed specifically to prevent but sometimes it makes life a little bit easier. And so you just got to go with it and uh, be careful to only add functionality. If it's specific to the relationship of those two systems. And what that means is um, in this specifically in this anti corruption layer, um, we only want to add things that are specific to both of those. So like uh, history, like a transaction log or something or, or logging here or, um, you know, we, we don't want to have any business logic here. We don't want to making decisions. That stuff needs to be living in one of those two systems proper and not in this translation layer. Specifically in those bounded contexts and those aggregate routes, you know, if we're talking about domain driven design. Yep. Yeah. And it doesn't really make sense to have a rule that's only in this weird weirdo layer between two worlds, right? 
Because, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It should just be mapping data across. Yep. Pretty much. And there was one other thing I did want to point out that he brought up at the very end of this whole thing that I thought was key. There's always a cost to integration. Always, right? And creating this anti-corruption layer can be time-consuming and expensive. And so you should make these considerations before you jump in and say, yes, we need this. Because anytime you do that, like that's another layer you have to maintain. And we, we alluded to it a minute ago with if something changes on one end, your system has to be updated to be aware of that. And those aren't necessarily going to always be talking to each other, right? Like it's not like the customer service department's going to say, Hey, we made a change to this. And all of a sudden the website's going to be aware of it, right? If these two things are working in a vacuum, but yet there's something that is tying them together, that's a potential risky situation right there. So it, it is, it's interesting. It's funny. He also, you read the whole thing about the great wall of China, right? Yeah. I, he he had a pretty decent analogy. I thought that, you know, the Great Wall of China was built to sort of keep chaos down, keep commerce going in the Chinese empire. And it actually bankrupted the the Chinese empire at one point, at least one of the one of the time dynasties. frames that was yeah. yeah, dynasties that was going on at the time. And it's expensive to maintain when you're building something that big, right? Like, and all you're trying to do is create this barrier. And that's what these anti-corruption layers are. They're these, these barriers, these layers to, to keep these things working together. They're expensive, man. Like, and depending on how complex it is, it can be just crazy. So take caution, right? Like, don't just go building this because you think, Hey, I heard about this anti-corruption layer thing. This is what we need to do. these things have a trade-off. There's there's a cost, there's a time resource thing, there's, and there's always the opportunity cost, right? Like if you're spending time working on this, what features can't you add or, or, or that kind of thing? So there's there's all kinds of things taken into consideration. You can always get the other guy to pay for the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag political. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> a couple, couple other strategies we've got here. Um, this is one of my favorites too, kind of like the conformance style. It's, they call it separate ways. Uh, which is basically give up. Um, sometimes it doesn't make sense to uh, to try and, and take care of uh, everything. You don't need to boil the ocean. And one kind of example I thought of here is like um, uh, Mint.com pulls some data from I don't even know how many financial institutions, right? So you can go and you can give them your bank info, your 401k info, everything else, right? And they'll come out. They'll go out and grab all that info and bring it back in, show you some nice, nice graphs. But there's no way they're doing 100% of all financial institutions. It's just impossible. And I think that the only strategy they really have uh, is to just do all that they can feasibly. And if somebody, you know, can't see their, uh, you know, uh, bank account at some, you know, podunk, whatever, you know, they they can't count the number of pennies in your penny jar. Um, They don't need to send out a team of people and deal with that strategy. They just say, you know what? You can't see your pennies on our website. We're sorry. (laughs) um, Like uh, cities will have buses, right? And buses go around, pick up people. They have routes. They have times. They get a flat tire. The bus is late. You know, they're not sending a plane to come pick you up. So, and that's just, uh, you know, a fact of life. And so I think that it's okay to not handle 100% of issues, but you do need to kind of think about it and, you know, just make a constant decision as to what happens when, when things break or if um, something is just not worth implementing because, you know, it's just not worth it. Right. I see a lot of times too, like um, 
lot of e-commerce sites, when they first start out, they'll, they'll get a real simple solution. Whenever they get an order, they'll get a, an email that says, hey, this person bought this thing. Like, you better go ship it. And, you know, as that business grows, they're probably going to want to get out of that. But that is a good, nice stepping stone. But sometimes orders get lost or, you know, emails get uh, in the junk folder or whatever. So uh, it is what it is, but sometimes it's worth it. Another strategy, open host service. And uh, that's basically where you consider publishing an API or uh, maybe like an SDK or something to make it easier for people to integrate with you. Um, and it kind of saves you some work uh, because you're not trying to deal with all the customer support issues that arise from them trying to do all sorts of wacky stuff with your uh, with your data. And the final strategy here uh, that they provide is a published language. And uh, this is this is really funny. They actually um, mentioned uh, a hot new language called XML being a, a common uh, way of inter- interrupting between systems. So uh, it gives you a little perspective on the, when the book was written. Uh, now I know I don't know anyone who still likes working with XML except for maybe me. XML is painful. You don't like it. Don't <laughs> lie. <laughs> but the other other languages like uh, MIDI is another good example where it's kind of like a uh, a language that's a lot of devices know how to speak and so it made sense to uh, kind of try to normalize the data inputs and outputs for all these different devices into something that's common. So um, if you're in this, you know, one in a million kind of scenario, you may want to consider developing your own uh, protocol or language. Have fun with that. <laughs> all right. And with that, it's it's now time for us to beg. So I got to say, we get reviews and we honestly read them. I, I read every one of them. I think I go to the site, all the sites every day, and I'm like, refresh, 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 right? I, I, I want to read these. I love them. We got some this last time that were like, hey, man, you know, I'm learning while I'm driving around. This is keeping my brain engaged. You know, it, it's funny. It, it, it's all the things that we hope to do, right? We hope to entertain. We hope to educate. And we hope to ignite that passion. So thank you to all who take the time to go up there and leave us a review. It seriously does make our day. And it, it really drives us to want to do more of these, right? Like here we are recording at midnight <laughs> on a Wednesday and, you know, after a full day of work. So thank you guys. We, we appreciate it. And please, if you haven't already do go leave us a review. It's, it's your way of giving back to us. And also if you want some cool free stuff, you know, go up to our website, www.codyblocks.net and the little newsletter section over there on the right. All we want is your name and your email and we'll basically just give away stuff. That's, that's been our status quo. It's not every single we email we send out, but it's probably 90 to 95% of them. So go do that. And again, thank you all for, you know, supporting us, leaving us reviews and listening. Yeah, we got three JetBrain subscriptions to give away right now. I actually need to get on that email. I'll say that for tomorrow. That's getting a little late. Excellent. But first, it's time oh, wait, for... Oh, wait, wait. It's www.cuttingblocks.net slash review. That that was a complete fail on my <laughs> part. All right. All good. Uh, now it's time for Outlaw's favorite part of the show. Survey says... <laughs> nice. Yep. Thank you. Uh, do you know what invariant means? So this is a, a, something we talked about a lot last episode and... Uh, well, like, I don't even know if I would have said yes or no <laughs> after, but uh, maybe after. But uh, what do you think the uh, audience said? Man, I'm hoping they were all siding with us and they were like, nope. <laughs> and, so I'm going to go with, unless everybody's trying to be a smarty and a know-it-all, 
I'm going to say nope, 40%. No, it's got, there's only two answers. Nope, 60%. All right. So, uh, actually. Man, come on. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry. Uh, the answer was yep. Um, yeah, people people did know what invariant meant. And uh, you want to take another guess on that uh, on that percent? Now that I told 60, you that. Way 65. Off. 65. Up. Oh, come on. 75? Up. This is bull crap. 85? Up. <laughs> you lie. No. <laughs> Just tell me. This is, this is making me sick. Uh, it's, it's almost 90%. I, I don't believe this. Is this a bunch of college kids that answered this? Like everybody just got this in class or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, feel free to leave us a comment and let us know, uh, like, why the heck you know what invariant means? Right. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Like, you remember when we had the episode of of boxing and unboxing and .net and what that actually meant? Yep. I never heard anybody use yep. those those terms ever. Yep. Until Vlad. Yeah, until Vlad. Vlad, <laughs> you, thank you for being the only person who has ever said that in a conversation ever yep. on the planet. But, like, at the time, I'd have been like, what's that? And same thing with invariant. Like, who says, we need to make sure the invariants match up? Yeah. <laughs> right? No. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Oh, that's a shame. Um. <laughs> and so, apparently, we need to learn some more. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, or or you guys need to get out more. You know, one of the others. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go with that. That makes me feel better. Yep. <laughs> oh boy. Well, uh, actually, uh, so now it's time for the next survey, and uh, this one actually we got from Joe Recursing Joe, uh, Joe uh, Ridley. So thank you very much for sending that in. Um, as I don't know what we've done, what I'm done without you. So we need it tonight. <laughs> uh, apparently, we lost out outlaw. Um. But the survey for this week is at what speed do you listen to your podcasts? And uh, I should have come up with something more clever. Outlaw always does, but all I've got are times here. So we're looking at like 0.5, 1, 1.5, and 2. And if you're somewhere in between, just kind of pick the one that's closest. Um, Round up. Yeah, (laughs) round up. (laughs) And then uh, this is probably going to make me feel dumb too. And everyone's going to be like, I listen to five. But... (laughs) I There's can't. no way. What do you listen right. to, on? I'm 1.5, almost everything. Uh, I do 1.5 on uh, podcasts, but books, sometimes I will bump it down to, to one. I don't know why. Really? No, books, I speed up because those readers, they exaggerate things a lot, and so they slow down. Like Scott Brick is one of my favorite uh, orators, I guess is what they're called. But, man, that guy, just amazing reading ability. But... He definitely takes dramatic pauses a lot. And so 1.5 is almost like it's listening to him at natural speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I've listened to anything for him. Oh, dude. He's he's good. Uh, have you ever listened to um, Orson Scott Card? Why can I not think? Uh, Ender's Game? Ender's Game. Have you heard that one? Um, I don't know. He reads the entire series. Oh, really? It, I definitely didn't he, do the whole series. He's good, man. He's really good. All right. Oh, um, so speaking of game shows, uh, I also um, I tried to think of a, a like a you know those Googles. I forget what Al, Al was calling them, but uh, I looked up uh, programming is for. What do you think? Number one responses. Programming is for nerds. 
So that's what I was expecting. Um, Losers is number two, actually. (laughs) But uh, the number one answer for me, at least, is programming is forgetting. Not for space skating, but forgetting one word. Oh, wow. That actually does for me, too, if you don't put a space. Yep. And uh, I Googled that phrase, and I found a lot of people um, writing it. And it's actually funny because it's uh, it's for a lot of different reasons. There are some articles like about programming is forgetting, which are basically uh, based around abstracting. So like you kind of build up these uh, these abstraction layers so that you can think at higher and higher levels. And so it's all about kind of pushing that other stuff and, and those details out of your head. But there's also uh, a lot of people talking about like things that they have forgotten or they've relearned. Or even looking at their code and like forgetting what the heck it does. So it's just funny to see that there's someone, so many people talking about programming and forgetting together. That's interesting. And losers. Wow, that's <laughs> that's harsh. Yeah. The nerds, nerds would have sort of been the last place when they're what number six. Yep. It says programming is for geeks. Man, yeah. that, Google the Google sphere is harsh. I think this was Google feud, right? And the, that's right. That Google feud. Yeah. There we go. I like it. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode has 10 data centers around the world with plans starting at $5 a month for 1 gig of RAM and 20 gigs of SSD storage and can go all the way up to 200 gigs of RAM with 16 CPU cores for all your heavy computing needs. And all this can be done in under a minute. Linode uses hourly billing with a monthly cap on plans and add-on services, which ensures you'll never get in over your head. You have full control of your VM, so go ahead and create Docker, encrypted disk, VPNs, and more. To get a promotional credit of $20 towards your Linode hosting, which is up to four months free, go to www.codingblocks.net slash Linode, that's L-I-N-O-D-E, and enter CodingBlock17 to get started today. All right, so I think, is this the last section that we have? This is. Home stretch. All right. So... This wasn't necessarily in Eric Evans' book, Domain Driven Design. This was something that is augmented. And honestly, I got it from the Pluralsight course that Julie Lehrman and Steve Smith did together. And I went out and also looked up a little bit more information on it as well. So what we're talking about now is domain events. And really, the concept is pretty simple. We'll get into some of it here, but... But this is a nice way to augment your domain-driven design patterns to where you can further, yet again, abstract and decouple certain layers from each other. And and we'll talk about some specific cases where that, that makes sense. So first, let's talk about what they are. They are used to capture something that happened, that happened, past tense, in the domain. It's, go ahead. I was just trying to think what happened mean. Okay, so, uh, you know, uh, processed order, processed payment. Not processed. Right, not processing payment or something. It it happened. We just did it. So that's when you start thinking about a, a, a domain event. A good practice is to include a date time to indicate when the event occurred because you'll probably need that when you go to do whatever needs to happen on it. 
It's a good idea to also in the payload that goes with this domain event is to include the aggregate the aggregates entity IDs as well because maybe that stuff needs to go along for the ride. So maybe your order ID if if you're doing some sort of like I process this order, pass along the order ID. And each domain event is its own class. And the way that I related this in my mind is and I've never seen too many people do this, but if you create special exceptions for your own classes, you typically create an exception per class that you're doing, right? So if you have an order placed exception or order allocation exception, whatever, you're going to create specific ones for each one. And so this is the same type concept. And this one is key. Raising the event should have no side effects or behaviors. And that seems kind of odd because you're going to say order processed, right? You raise that event. Then something's going to happen, but it shouldn't happen in the object that's raising that event is I guess what I'm getting down to, right? In the scope of where that's being raised, you've already done everything that you expect to happen on that entity or that aggregate route or whatever, that thing should be raised so that other things can operate on it. Typically, external services. Okay, and I'm the kind of thinking like a pub sub type model. Like, um, I might attach some sort of listener that says, "Hey, when an order is placed, uh, placed like blink a light, like Steve from um, uh, GRC, what's the name? Uh, Security analysis got that. Whenever he sells a, a copy of Spinray, he's got a little flag that or a light that goes off." Yeah, that's uh, so. I've actually got to know a little bit further down. This is totally pub sub. And it's kind of a lightweight of doing it because there's there's also, um, I think, CQRS. There's domain events with event sourcing. And that's way more complex. This is literally just a simple pub-sub type thing. So in doing the research for this, one of the articles I came along on that I really liked, I liked his approach, was uh, LosTechies.com. Jimmy Bogard wrote an article back in 2014, and he called it the better domain events pattern. And so one of the things that he talks about here is one of the final patterns needed to create a fully encapsulated domain model, one that fully enforces consistency, boundary, and invariance. So what he's saying is, if you really want to complete your domain-driven design, you really need to integrate this stuff. And by the way, I, I didn't see it on their site, and I think Julie Lehrman and Steve mentioned it in their course on Pluralsight. I think there's a NuGet package, or at least there's an open-source library out there for domain events that you could just get. And so it's easy to hook it up and set up your event handlers and and add in your domain events. So there, there are a good place to start so you don't have to try and reinvent the wheel and recreate all that stuff. But what he goes into in this article that I thought was really important is in your typical way of doing it, let's, let's say that you take, I, I even wrote down something so that it would make it a little bit easier. Um, instead of firing off the domain events directly in your method, because the problem with that is if, if you think about like a static method like process order or something like that, you do all your stuff in there that needs to happen and then you raise this event directly in that method. Whatever's responding to that event now, you potentially can get side effects 
because it's going to happen inside the scope of that method that was called process order, right? So process order, you might say, go allocate, go do whatever, right? Charge payments, blah, blah, blah. But then you're going to call this raise event order processed. Whatever's listening at that point in time is going to operate on that thing, right? And so before you even returned out of that method, something else happened that could mutate the state of that, or you could have some problems. And it's not testable either. If you have a static method like that that's firing off, you got no way of actually hooking into that with a unit test, right? Not not without having all kinds of crazy side effects. So the pattern that he said was, okay, instead of saying, you know, this dot raise event or or raise event add it to an events collection so within your method for process order instead of saying you know raise domain event here and then creating a new one instead of that you add it to an events collection and say hey you know events dot add new order process type thing now here's the cool part after it gets out of there, when you get, when you're done with this thing, right? What, whatever the entire overall transaction is, then you get into a state where it says, okay, now go run these events, right? Go raise all these events in order that they came in. And then that way it's outside the scope of any of the methods. Now you're probably down to the area where you're about to persist this data. And so at this point you need all the other things to happen and so it happens outside of the scope of anything, but it operates. Does any of that make sense? I, yeah, I so hope we're kind of talking about like avoiding race conditions where maybe uh, I'm still kind of doing stuff. I raise the event and now somebody's trying to come in and poke holes in my, in my stuff. Right, right. It, it, and it's a way of ensuring that your entity doesn't get modified at the wrong time, right? Like, and, and all these external, because if we think about it, right? So we've all seen systems, I know you and I have, we've seen systems to where order processed. And then the very next line would be something like, and I think I even said it, allocate inventory, right? And then the very next line inside there is ship line items, you know, and so there's this very procedural way of, okay, now go do this, now go do this. And it's all inside that process order method, right? Instead of doing that now, when you turn this thing into a domain event, you don't have to be aware of all these external things that have to happen. All you have to do is make sure that you send up the data via that domain event class that you created and said order processed. Now, if you have a service out there that allocates inventory, it can be listening to that order processed event and it handles when it's done, right? That thing raised, it goes allocates inventory. You have another service out there, ship line items. That thing listens, it, it handles the event, that order processed thing, and it will ship the line items. And then if in the future, some new thing comes along, right? Like, uh, maybe add to customer service rewards or, or customer rewards points, right? All of a sudden you add a new service to that. You don't have to go touch this code. All it's doing is raising that event. This new code can be sitting out there. It's brand new. It's sitting on its own. It's in a service. It's decoupled. You just hook it in and say, listen for this event. And when this happens, then go run this code. So it's a very clean way of decoupling your domain from all the other services that might need to hook into things that happen in that domain. 
Now, um, what about uh, inter do- or intra-domain events? Does it make sense to maybe have something in my own domain or my own bounded context that is watching for events? I think it could all be handled the same. I mean, if you were going to go that route, I would think that maybe you could just use some sort of encapsulation to make sure that it doesn't leak out. Um, I don't think there's anything that stops it from that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't see anything specifically that addressed it, but I mean, it's the same concept, right? You're still going to have a pub sub, but it might be internal. Yeah. I guess the idea is like, why wouldn't you just call a thing? And like, I guess the only reason you would really need to do the pub sub there is if you need some sort of dynamic, you know, whatever going on. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of outside the idea of domain events. So it's just kind of eventing in general. Right. 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 Well, I got Which, another one for you. Okay. What if I want to cheat and do like a, uh, before events so i could say like before server shutdown and uh, that the, the um server shutdown hasn't happened yet but the before the server shutdown has happened and the example i kind of think of there is like um if you're playing like an online game you might get a, a message on your screen that says like server shutdown in 15 minutes you know save and sign off whatever and so i, I thought it was kind of a funny little uh um interpretation of that the event has passed because the event that has passed is 15 minutes before something happens I don't know what to do about something like that. I mean, because you're saying that it's happening out of order, right? No, I'm just saying like I'm raising an event that's a that seemingly seems like it's hasn't happened yet, but really, uh, I'm just I'm just muddying the waters for no reason. Is what I'm doing. I think you are, but I, I'm <laughs> curious though. Like, how could we follow that through? I mean, the the whole idea of having like the before, because what I'm thinking about there is like, let's say that you have order processed right as an event you could actually have something using aspects or something that would automatically wrap those and do a before and after, you know, during or something like that. Um, but to your point about, you know, something that actually happened that it's lying to you about, I don't know what to do. With well, it's not necessarily like lying because the event would say before shutdown, like that would be the event name before server shutdown. Um, it wouldn't be, you know, telling you ahead of time. It would literally uh, be like a warning, like, Hey, we've we've come to the point in time that I should be warning you about something that is going to happen, and so that point in time has passed, and that's the event that I'm I'm notating. It's just uh confusing, <laughs> but I think that's also where you put the date stamp on it, and that helps, right? Like you can whatever service is listening for that thing. If that is the case, then it can somewhat intelligently intelligently decide what to do at that point. Right. Like if, if all of a sudden it gets it and it's like, wait a second, that was 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I can't do anything right now, but, or I do, I have 10 minutes for it happens. I can go ahead and save these things. I, I don't know. But I think I, I, that was one of the key things from the plural site video that I really liked was the fact that if you, if you timestamp that thing, that could tremendously help you out, right? Mm-hmm. Because that could also take care of any race conditions or anything else that comes up, right? If you need to worry about concurrency or anything like that. So I was thinking too about that, like EXCGS, for example, does a lot of stuff where it'll be like, um, you know, some sort of persistence store dot before load. And that's where it'll kind of gather data that it needs to do its thing. And it'll have an after load method and it'll have, a, you know, these kind of um, different life cycle events. And I was just kind of thinking about, um, you know, what it means to say that these domain events are always in the past. And like, well, the before loaded, I mean, the before time is definitely in the past now. So I was just trying to think if those were kind of valid oh, events. Oh, so I see what you're saying now. So that's interesting because the EXTGS way that you're talking about, which anybody who hasn't, doesn't know what we're talking about, it's a JavaScript framework 
slash library slash API slash widget creator that you can hurt yourself trying to program. Um, I do love the events though, but there are no events I can think of that are like loading. You know, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to do that. If you wanted to have like some sort of like full screen mask that says loading or whatever, you would hook that up in a before load because it makes sense. Yep. You say, before I even try to run this, go ahead and put the mask up and then after load, let's take it down. But both of those events really have happened in the past at that point. So by even, the time you're actually throwing that screen up, it's in the background going on and loading something else in a separate thread. So it's interesting because the pattern that they follow is like, let's say render, right? Because render is one of the big ones that they have. That really fires after it's rendered. So if they were going to name it properly, it would be rendered. Mm-hmm. But what they do, so to your point, and this kind of goes back to the aspect thing, what they do is before it calls that main method, it looks to see or it fires off an event and it, it through the JavaScript way of doing things, it depends the word before before whatever that, that event call was. So before render will be run first. And if that thing returns false for any reason, then it won't even run the render piece of code. If it returns true or doesn't return anything at all, then it'll run the render. So it'll fire the before event, then it'll fire the render event, and then after it's done with that, it'll go ahead and fire the after render event. So to your point though, I think those are all still in the past because it's only firing those events after they've completed that particular step. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so the so before it, loaded step is complete. Right, right. So I think that's where that's why they introduced that before render because, it, and I mean, unfortunately, it's just a naming thing that's sort of misleading. And you could do the same thing here, right? You could instead of naming it order processed, you could name it order process or, or order process, right? If you wanted or process order. Something like that. But that indicates that it's done. Mm -hmm. If you wanted something to be able to do it before, then you could probably do something like an aspect and say, hey, before this thing runs, run if there's a method called before, then then fire that off or fire off this event or something. I don't know. Those progressive loading bars too that you've probably seen in applications like if it's a crap application or you know, if it's just not worth it, it might just kind of spin forever. But there are some applications that be like Hey, it'll throw an event and say, hey, 47% done now. You should update the bar, then 63% done. But that should only happen after that threshold has been uh, exceeded. Right. Yeah, you don't you don't want it telling you that it's 70% done when it's really only 65. Yeah, Windows, so, you listen? <laughs> listen to Bill Gates? Uh, I don't think Bill Gates cares anymore. I wonder what his last commit was. Man. 19, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so... I think that that's uh that kind of wraps it all up. The, I guess the uh, the domain events that kind of all makes sense then. Yeah, cool. I actually am. I keep wanting to do stuff more with events. Like whenever I'm playing around with uh, like or Unity, uh, I keep wanting to have these kind of generic, um, you know, player jumped or player hidden under player in it because I want to keep having these separate systems that like show text or update a health bar or whatever. I want to have those things all kind of separate and clean. I haven't really found a good way to do that in a static language like C sharp. I'm, so maybe I'm just missing it, but I don't want to, I, I feel silly trying to like reinvent uh, an event bus in, in a video game. Um, it makes me feel like I'm doing something wrong. I wonder if it, just out of curiosity, if something like rabbit and Q would work in a situation like, because really all it is is a Q, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even the pub sub whole event model, it's, it's nothing more than a Q of 
of things that were raised, and then you have handlers that are supposed to listen to them. Yeah, I don't so, think I want to set up a, a whole service inside the game, but I think I could do the same or a similar thing by having just a queue and kind of pop stuff up and uh, stuff on and off. There's event handlers in C Sharp, so you should be able to do it, right? Yeah, but then you have to manage the whole adding and lifecycle and stuff. So it's like, okay, here's a player. Uh, Let me go hook up all my dozen of events that I care about. So it's just a pain in the butt. Could you do that through um, dependency injection? Yeah, and that's the route I started to go down a few times. But And there's two main inge- uh, dependency injection frameworks that are common in Unity. And both of them were like... Okay, first thing you do is re-architect your app so this takes care of all, you know, all creation of objects. I'm like, well, that ship has sailed. <laughs> Maybe next project. And then the other one I just haven't looked at. I forget the names of them now, but yeah, it wasn't happening. Uh, that makes sense. Cool. Well, the the resources we like, we'll have those in the show notes. Again, the Plural Site course, can't recommend it enough. It was excellent. Uh, Modern Software Architecture, Domain Model CQRS Event Sourcing by Dino Esposito. That was also a very good one, Domain Driven Design. Uh, the book that we are currently going through and in trying to share that information with you. Yeah, man, uh, a special shout out to Herbert. Uh, I'm sorry about your name. Herbert, Herbert Ograka.com uh, uh, has a really nice write-up on uh, actually the chapter that I spent a lot of time um, looking at. Unfortunately, I found it uh, after I already typed a bunch of my notes. I already just copy paste it and stole it from me. Sorry, Herbert. But it is really nicely done, and I'm looking forward to reading more about your blog, and uh, we'll have a link in the show notes there. Cool. We got ddcommunity.org, domainlanguage.com, and the Los Techies or Los Techies uh, article that I mentioned just a second ago for the domain events. So now it's time for my favorite part of the show. This is the tip of the week. It's the tip of the week. <laughs> All right. So, Joe, what you got? I closed the window. Uh, so, um, know thy debugger. So, I found a really nice list of tips for um, the uh, Chrome DevTools. And we had, there's actually just been a recent update. But um, this particular web page that we'll have in the show notes has got like, um, I don't know, 15 or so different tips. And it's actually got a little screenshot showing you how to do everything from like print, pretty printing in uh, Chrome DevTools to how to easily uh, edit HTML. And some of the stuff I'm, I'm sure you know, but to skip the line number, there's definitely going to be a few things that. Uh, You'll probably get some use out of like multiple cursors. Um, so yeah, it's just a it's a really cool um, write up of and demonstrations of how to use the Chrome debugger, which is something that uh, a lot of people are spending a lot of time in, but not maybe realizing that uh, there are these really cool advanced options. Very very nice. All right, so mine. Let me open <gasps> mine back oh, up so real quick. Oh. No, go ahead. Man, I found my favorite. Um, toggle element state. You ever do one of those things where you're like you try and hover over something? And you're like also trying to see it in the uh, in the inspector. Yeah. So you're like, oh damn it! And you're like trying to like even maybe even like look into both to try and whatever. There's actually a little style thing. There's a little um, if you click the uh, little pin, uh, like the push pin uh-huh. at the top, it pops down a little window, and you can just click hover or active or focus or blur, and it'll just put it in that state. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, visited. Yeah, I mean it's, it's just amazing. <laughs> That's beautiful. So many times I've like tried to hover and look at the, <laughs> the right, same right. time. Right. What did it do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. I didn't know that. I will be visiting all those tips. So mine is C sharp based this time, and it's the explicit keyword in C sharp. You know what that does? No. All right, beautiful. Um, 
So this one's kind of cool. If you're trying to cast one type to another type, you can use the explicit keyword. And when you do the cast, it will run a particular method that you have. So you create an operator. So in this case, you could say public static explicit operator. And let's say that you wanted to convert Celsius uh, to Fahrenheit or from Fahrenheit to Celsius, then you basically just, you can create your inline method there. And then the next time you do that cast, it will use that operator. It'll automatically cast it for you. Oh, very it's, cool. It's pretty sweet. So I didn't know that existed. I mean, I've written conversion things before in the past. I didn't know that I could sort of like override a cast like that. And it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's very nice. It actually reminds me, I was playing, uh, Rocket League with a guy from the Netherlands uh, who's literally his name is actually Guy. He was <laughs> Netherlands. Hi, Guy. Uh, but he, uh, <laughs> he mentioned being uh, miserably hot because it's thirty degrees over there, and of course me being a fun, I'm like, come on. And then I realized I'm an idiot and I'm uh, <laughs> Fahrenheit centric. So I did the calculation. <laughs> it is indeed hot. So I what what is thirty degrees hot? Is that ninety something? It's it's getting there. Let me see. I have to <laughs> I, I feel like you're still going to be like, come on, you live in Florida, man. It's hot down there. Yeah, but I recognize that it, it really, truly is hot. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't I don't know. It is 86 degrees, man. That is just barely warm. <laughs> I, I think I'm used to it, but I still think it's hot. It's ridiculous that anyone lives anywhere that isn't just 60 all the time. Dude, did you see, uh, this is totally off the rails, uh, Arizona was hitting 120 <laughs> It was too hot for planes to fly. I know. They shut down airplanes. Like, hey, man, it's time to move. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I did have an additional tip of the week, sort of similar to yours, actually. I found this great article, which is where I saw the explicit thing that was uh, developer.com slash net top 10 tips for C sharp programmers, I think is what it really was supposed to be. And he did, he had some great tips on there. So that link will be in the show notes as well. So you get some bonuses this time. And I think that was pretty much it. All right. Yeah. This episode, we talked about uh, strategic design and domain events. Don't forget to check out the uh, show notes for links to things like uh, the video review of uh, Lenovo versus the uh, what? HP. HP. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah so uh hey, hey, you need to go watch it it's only twelve thirty our time yeah you're gonna watch it now right and that's like <laughs> twelve thirty our time is like four thirty my time this is just ridiculously <laughs> late i'm a big baby uh, uh so subscribe to us on itunes stitcher and more using your favorite podcast app i'll let you go Oh, be sure to give us reviews by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review. While you're up there, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel at codingblocks.slack.com. You can invite yourself by going to uh, codingblocks.net slash Slack. And also be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to codingblocks.net and find all our social links at the top of the page. Mm-hmm.